So good to be with you, church, to have the joy of worshiping together, to have the privilege of looking to God's word together. We'll be continuing in the gospel of Matthew today. If you remember, Jesus has just foretold at the Last Supper that he's going to be betrayed by Judas, that he's going to be denied by Peter, that he's going to be abandoned by the rest of his disciples, and Jesus is arrested, and he's now being tried, first by the religious leaders of the day, and now he's being taken to Pontius Pilate, the civil leaders of the day. Jesus is arrested, and he's being tried, but Matthew here, he's going to interrupt the trial of Jesus to insert and to tell us what happened to Judas. Let's read together, Matthew chapter 27, verses 1 through 10. It says, when morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. Then when Judas' betrayer saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and hanged himself. But the chief priest taking the pieces of silver said, it is not lawful to put them into the treasury since it is blood money. So they took counsel and brought with them, bought with them the, the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, and they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. The text today is filled with contrasts. Just last week, we looked at Peter, the denying of Jesus, and the bitter weeping that followed. And then by inserting Judas's story of remorse and regret here, what Matthew wants us to do is he wants us to compare and he wants us to contrast. But it's not just Peter and Judas. In the text today, we're going to see three contrasts. The contrast of Judas versus Peter the contrast of the chief priests of Israel versus the true and better high priest, that is Jesus, the contrast of evil men and their planning versus the good sovereignty of God and his plan. So first contrast, Judas's betrayal and his regret versus Peter's denials and his repentance. Let's look at the text again. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, He changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and hanged himself. So what we're seeing here is that Judas is distraught over what he has done and betraying Jesus. Now, make no mistake he did commit the ultimate act of evil. Judas did betray and sell away the Son of God. 
But afterwards, it broke him. It broke him. He's so distraught. He's so broken over what he has done that he went and committed the ultimate act of regret and remorse. He went and killed himself. This, Matthew wants us to see alongside Peter. We saw last week Peter denying Jesus over and over and over again with oaths and with cursing. And Luke tells us that after the third time that the eyes of Jesus met the eyes of Peter and that Peter went out and wept bitterly. And so when you compare the sheer emotion of it all, we can't in any way say that, well, what's the difference between Judas and Peter? The difference is that Peter felt more broken over his sin than Judas. We can't say that. We can't in any way say that be, that Peter's bitter weeping was somehow more heartfelt than Judas's remorse. And we can't somehow theologically argue that what Judas did was so much worse than what Peter did. Peter sinned by saying, what are you talking about? I don't know him. By taking an oath that he doesn't know him. By the third time cursing that he doesn't know Jesus. But what did Judas say? All Judas said was, He's out in the garden. I know where he is. I'll take you to him. In fact, you can maybe make the case that what Peter did was worse than what Judas did. That what Judas did, he only did once. But what Peter did, he did three times. When we think about Judas and Peter, we're tempted to have kind of a one-dimensional, simplistic view of them. We think Peter good, Judas bad. But remember when Jesus at dinner said to the disciples, one of you is going to betray me. Do you remember what the disciples said? They didn't say, Judas. It's Judas, right, Jesus? He always got that look on his face, right? No, they didn't say that. Instead, each they asked, who is it? They didn't know. They asked, is it I, Lord? Is it me? Throughout this gospel, we've seen the disciples make a lot of mistakes, right? But this right here, they got right. When Jesus, what Jesus wants us to have is such an understanding of our own sinfulness that when we think about the worst sin anyone could ever commit, the person with the most potential to betray Jesus, he doesn't want someone else to come to mind. He wants us to come to mind. He wants us to say, is it me, Lord? Is it me, Jesus? I'm just as capable. Evil in here, the sin in here, I'm just as capable as anyone else. The point is, it's not Peter good and Judas bad. They're both bad. We're bad. We're all sinners and have the potential to commit the greatest of sins. There's only one that is good, and his name is Jesus. We have to understand that Peter and Judas were called by Jesus, right? That Peter left everything to follow Jesus. Judas left everything to follow Jesus. And when they heard, the, when, they, when, they, when Jesus calmed the storm, when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, Peter didn't just see Jesus' power. Lazarus saw Jesus' power. And they both heard the same teachings. When Jesus taught that there's a narrow road, that leads to life, but a broad road that leads to destruction. When Jesus taught that you cannot serve God and money, when Jesus taught about the prodigal son, that no matter how far you run away, 
that no matter how much sin you're in, how much hopelessness you're in, that you have a Father in heaven who is always waiting to embrace you, to forgive you, and to restore you. Peter heard it, and Judas heard it. Jesus, Jesus didn't just give three years of his life to Peter. He gave three years of his life to Judas. Jesus, Jesus didn't just wash Peter's feet. He washed Judas's feet. And what we see here is that there came for them a point in time when they realized who it was that they denied and betrayed. That it was this Jesus who had loved them and served them with his whole being every day for three years. You see, the greatness of our sin isn't merely measured by the act itself, but by the greatness of the one we acted against. You see, Judas and Peter, they didn't just deny, they didn't just betray, Peter denied Jesus. Judas betrayed Jesus. And for each of us, there comes a moment eventually when we realize, oh, I didn't just sin. I sinned against Jesus. I sinned against the one who upholds all things by the word of his power. I sinned against the one who has loved me with this whole being every day of my life. When did that moment come for Peter? It was that moment when the rooster crowed and when their eyes met when Peter saw Jesus after what he had done. Luke tells us that Peter went out and wept bitterly. And it was the same for Judas. Matthew tells us in verse 3, then when Judas, his betrayer, saw, when he saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. Just as when Peter saw Jesus, he went out and wept bitterly, there came a moment when Judas saw Jesus, saw that he was condemned, saw that he was bound and beaten, and it made him crumble as well. When Judas saw the full consequence of his sin, it broke him. Have you ever experienced this kind of a moment? The moment when it all hits you and you think, what have I done? The moment when you see the cost of it all. Jesus said that Satan was at work in Judas, remember? And one of the things that Satan will do when tempting us to sin is that he hides the full consequences of that sin. He says, no, you will not surely die. He hides what it will truly cost you. He blinds us from seeing and realizing all the pain, all the hurt, and all the consequences that will follow our sin. And that's precisely why we fall into temptation all the time, because all we can see is the upside. All we can see is the immediate benefit. All we can see is finally being able to get that thing that we really wanted. But we have no idea the true cost that will come. Before the sin, we're blinded. We're blinded to what it's going to cost. But what about after the sin? After the sin, there will eventually and inevitably come a moment when our eyes will be open to see the full consequence of it all. It may take a few days. It may take a few months or even years. But it's coming when we'll see it. The cost of it all. And in that moment, 
a remorse will hit, a regretting, a looking at the very thing that we traded away Jesus for, whether it's money or success or power or some relationship, and we become desperate to throw it all back if it would only mean that we could take it all back, what we did. And no matter who you are, Peter or Judas or believer or unbeliever, the remorse, the regret over sin is something that is inescapable. Sin will eventually and always bring you to a moment of absolute and utter regret and remorse because sin is never free. It always costs. The money that he wanted so badly, the very thing that Judas longed so greatly for, now he wants to get rid of so desperately. So what's Judas doing here? Isn't he repenting here? That's how some versions even translated in verse 3, that when Judas saw that Jesus was condemned, that Judas repented. But that's an unfortunate translation because that's not the word that Matthew uses. The Greek word for salvific repentance in the Bible, the word for genuine repentance, which is a whole turning away from sin and turning towards Jesus, is the Greek word metanaeo. But the word that Matthew uses for what Judas did here is the word metamelamai, which simply means to regret, to feel sorry, to feel sad, to wish it hadn't happened. Well, what's the main difference? With metamelamai, you are, in a sense, turning away from your sin. But you're not yet turning to Jesus. You're, you're looking at the sin. You're looking at the thing that you did, and you're saying there's a grief. There's a remorse over that. You're trying to make a commitment to turn away and not do that thing anymore. But there's not yet a turning to Jesus. That's one of the main differences. What we're seeing from Judas is not repentance, a turning to Jesus. What we're seeing is regret, just an attempt to turn away from his sins and to fix it. Just a sorrow and a grief over sin's consequences. What we're seeing is what Paul calls in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, a worldly sorrow, a worldly grief. Paul says this, for godly grief produces a repentance. Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. That's that word, metamelamai. Whereas worldly grief produces death. And this is the great danger that we face, church. Oftentimes, after we've sinned, we might feel bad. There may be a sorrow. There may be weeping, even. A commitment to never do that thing again. And because of that, we might think we're repenting. But what Paul is saying here is that there's a kind of a sorrow, there's a kind of a weeping that looks awfully like real repentance, but it's not. It's just regret. You're just sorry that it's costing you. And you, and you may even be deeply regretting it, what you did. But there's nothing particularly Christian about regret in and of itself. There's an eternity of difference between regret and repentance. So here's Peter and here's Judas. On that same fateful night, they are both grieved because of their denial, because of their betrayal of Jesus. But think about this. Just a few days later, Peter would be eating the breakfast that Jesus cooked for him on the beach. 
And just a few weeks after that, Peter would be fully restored back into ministry, roaring like a lion, preaching the gospel no matter the threat this time, and building God's church and turning the world upside down. But Judas, but Judas would be dead, having hung himself. What's the difference? What we're able to see, at least for now, is that Peter had a godly grief and a sorrow over sin that produced repentance, a turning to Jesus, while Judas just had a worldly grief and a sorrow, just a regret which produced death. Let's look at the next contrast that we see in the text today, the contrast between the chief priest of the day and the true and better high priest, that is Jesus. Judas comes to this moment of regret, a realization of his sin and the consequence of it all. And what did he do with that sorrow and regret? Where did he take his sorrow and regret? Let's look at the text again. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, it says, saying, I have sinned. But they said, what is that to us? See to it yourself, right? Where did Judas take his regret and sorrow? Judas went to the chief priests. And what were the priests doing, remember? Verse 1. They were taking Jesus to Pontius Pilate, remember? Which means what? It means Jesus is right there. Commentators say that Jesus was at most just a few feet away. And it's incredible, isn't it? Jesus is right there, but Judas, instead of taking his sorrow and regret to Jesus, he takes it to the chief priest. Judas takes the 30 pieces of silver back to them, and he says, I've sinned by betraying innocent blood. He's saying, I've sinned. He's confessing his sins, but he's confessing his sins not to Jesus, but to the chief priest. But do you remember who Peter ran to? The first chance he got after he sinned, sitting in the midst of his unimaginable shame and regret. He gets the news from Mary Magdalene that the tomb is empty. And even at the slightest hint, at the slightest chance, at the slightest belief that he would be able to go see Jesus, he runs. He runs to the tomb the first chance he got. So why is Judas going to the chief priest instead of Jesus? One reason he's going to the chief priest is because he thinks he can undo the situation because he thinks by giving the money back that he could fix the problem, that he could fix what he has done. You see, a worldly sorrow sees sin as something that you can fix, something that you could undo. But a godly sorrow says, I can't fix it. There's nothing I can do to undo it. With worldly sorrow, you say, I've sinned. Look at what it's costing me. Look at the pain it's causing me. So where can I go and what can I do so that I can fix this problem and make it all go away? But with godly sorrow, you say, I've sinned. Look at what it costs Jesus. Look at what it's doing to him. I need to go to Jesus because I've run away from him. But worldly sorrow says that our sin is something that can be fixed. But a godly sorrow is that our sin is something that can only be forgiven. What you've done, it can't be undone. But it can be forgiven. By going to the chief priest instead of Jesus, Judas is saying, I can fix it. Let me fix it. How do we deal with our sin, church? Are we trying to fix it? 
Are we trying to undo it? Or are we going to Jesus so that he can forgive it? That's another difference between godly sorrow and a worldly one. But sadly for Judas, Judas had become awfully comfortable with not going to Jesus. Judas had made a habit of not confessing his sins to Jesus. Why do I say that? Remember when Mary broke her alabaster flask for Jesus? This is what John tells us, John chapter 12, verse 4. It says, but Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. How long did he do this for? For how long was he stealing? And for how long did he have this uncontrolled and unconfessed love for money? And think about this. How many chances? How many opportunities must Judas had to just go to Jesus and say, Jesus, I've sinned. I've been stealing my love for money. I can't control it. Will you please forgive me, Jesus? Will you help me, Jesus? But instead, Judas harbored and he kept his sin secret in the midst of in the midst of being in a regular, everyday, intimate presence of Jesus for three years. Why didn't Judas go to Jesus when he was just right there? Because he made a habit of not going to Jesus even though he was just right there. And maybe some of us are like, well, even Jesus himself said that he was the son of perdition and that Satan entered into him. How could Judas help it? But what we have to realize is that Satan didn't enter into Judas the first time he stole some money. Satan didn't enter into him after the second time or the third time or after the fourth time of not confessing. Satan was only able to enter into Judas after three years. Only after three years of stealing. Only after three years of harboring and keeping sin secret and refusing to confess it was the three years of hardening that created the softening for Satan to enter. Klaus Schilder, a Dutch theologian and professor, made this observation. He said, it is the peculiar majesty of Jesus that he can conquer man without man's first approaching him. As someone once said, Jesus can save you without your permission. When you want nothing to do with him, he could break in. That's his power. But Satan's frailty is proved by this, that he cannot approach a soul unless that soul has first turned to him. Sometimes we get this the wrong way around, fearing that Satan will somehow have secret access to God's children while doubting that Jesus can do anything for a person unless they open the door. But the Bible teaches precisely the opposite. Church, are we going to Jesus with our sins or are we making a regular habit of not going to him? What makes Judah's story so tragic isn't that Jesus was so far off. What makes Judah's story so tragic was that he was so near. Jesus was so near every day. 
he was right there and Judas refused to go. And lastly, let's look at the third contrast. The contrast between men's evil and their plans versus the sovereignty of God and his plan. Verse 6. But the chief priest, taking the pieces of silver, said, It is not lawful to put them into the treasury, since it is blood money. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by the sons, some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. Here's what Matthew has pointed out so far. He's pointed out Peter's evil in denying Jesus. He's pointed out Judas's evil in betraying Jesus. And now he's pointing out the chief priest's evil in their unwillingness to accept back into the temple treasury the 30 pieces of silver because they say that it's what? Because they say that it's blood money. What's blood money? Blood money is money that you pay to have someone killed. They didn't see any problem with paying the money for murder, but now they have a real tender conscience against taking back the money for murder. They don't want to take it back because they say it's blood money. Matthew is pointing out that they themselves are calling it that. In other words, what? In other words, they knew Jesus was innocent. They arrested Jesus with blood money. They tried him in front of Caiaphas, but no one could make a legal, legitimate case against him. What we have to understand that is that these chief priests and elders, they broke every rule in the book when it comes to having a just and fair trial according to Jewish law that they themselves wrote. A trial was supposed to be done during the day. It was supposed to be visible, observable by the public. But they took Jesus to Caiaphas in the secrecy of the night. As a chief priest, they weren't allowed to themselves make a charge. You can't charge someone and then try them for it, right? Instead, they were simply there to hear and judge the charges that the people were bringing. And there couldn't just be charge made by one person, one person's accusations. There had to be multiple witnesses to the charge. But we saw in Matthew chapter 26 that not only... Weren't there any witnesses, any charges, but these chief priests had a hard time even finding false witnesses to come and make a charge. According to Jewish law, a trial of capital punishment, it had to take three days. It couldn't be done hastily. You had to allow multiple days so that all the witnesses could, would have ample opportunity to find out about the trial, to come forward, to tell the whole story. But these chief priests and elders, they tried Jesus in the secrecy of the night and were trying to execute Jesus that following morning. They didn't want other people finding out and coming to testify on behalf of Jesus. Judicially speaking, the reason why Judas went to the chief priest was because he was following Jewish jurisprudence. He was representing himself within the allotted three days and saying, I was a false witness. He's innocent. According to Jewish law, if this had happened, there was supposed to be a retrial, but no retrial was given. Jewish law was known for its 
intricacy and wisdom. It existed not only to serve exacting justice, but to protect the innocently accused. There were all these fail-safes. Another example being that if the judgment was unanimous, that you had to throw out the decision. If the judgment was unanimous, you have to throw it out. Why? Because it meant that there was no one in the council that acted as a defense for the accused. It was rigged. No one within the council stood up and defended Jesus because Matthew is saying that all the chief priests and all the elders had already determined and planned in their minds even before the trial to put Jesus to death. There was nothing just or legal about Jesus' trial. Walter Chandler, who wrote a book called The Trial of Jesus, analyzing it from the perspective of a lawyer, said, the illegal trial of Jesus and his execution was the greatest travesty of justice the world will ever see. He said, there exists no stronger case of judicial murder in history for the simple reason that all forms of law were outraged and trampled underfoot in the proceedings instituted against Jesus. Why am I telling you all this? Because everything seems out of control. When you look at the tragedy of Peter denying Jesus and the heartbreak of seeing Judas who was so close to Jesus, having so many chances and yet he doesn't make it. When we see those that were closest to him falling apart, when we see Satan himself at work, and when we see the enemies of Jesus, they seem to be winning. The evil scheming and their planning, the chief priests and the elders, it seems to be being accomplished, unimpeded. What can we make of it? Everything seems to be falling apart, and the enemy seems to be winning. What do we do with that? What's going on? Matthew says in verse 9, he says, then was fulfilled. Everything is out of control. Everything is crazy. Evil seems to be winning. He comes in and he says, then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, and they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. What, what is Matthew saying? He's saying everything, everything happened according to God's plan. Everything that happened, happened in order to fulfill what God had already planned. That the denying, the betraying, the illegal proceedings, that everything, even down to this weird little detail of Jesus being sold for 30 pieces of silver and that money being used to purchase a field, that all of it had already been planned and foretold and that no actions of men, no matter how evil and no events in human history, no matter how tragic, can thwart God's will. That's Matthew's point, that Jesus is not a victim whose life was taken from him by evil men's plans, but that he was the savior of the world who had laid down his life according to God's sovereign plan, the plan that was planned before the foundations of the world. So all we might be able to see at certain times is the evil, is the sin, the tragedy, and the travesty. But what was God doing? He was saving. He was saving. Men and Satan were working to kill Jesus, but what was God doing? 
He was accomplishing the cross, not in spite of men's evil, not in spite of tragic events of travesty, but through them. What man meant for evil, God meant it for good. And we have one of God's greatest promises that makes us invincible in this world, being fulfilled right here, that God works all things. He works all things for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And so in closing and by way of application, because this promise is true, here's what we can do. Because of God's promise, because of his promise that he will work all things for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Church, we can go to him. We can go to him even in our darkest moments. We can go to him harboring the deepest and the darkest sin we've ever committed. Why? Because the darkest things, the greatest sins we've ever committed cannot thwart God's plan over your life. You think you wrecked your life. You think it's unredeemable. You think, what is God going to do with this? And he's saying, I work all things. I work all things for the good of those who love you, who have been called according to this purpose. And this too, this sin too, I'm going to work out for your good, for my glory. And you know what else? We can keep going. You don't have to give up. You know what was one of the most significant differences between Peter and Judas was? That while Peter was just as sinful, that while Peter was just as broken, just as desperate, just as ashamed, that he hung on. That he didn't quit. Peter lived long enough to experience Jesus forgive him and restore him. He lived long enough to learn that even though he had denied Jesus, even though he was faithless, that Jesus would never deny him, that he will always be faithful. He just lived long enough to see it, to experience it. Maybe there are some of you here, you're just, you're just broken. You just want to quit. Don't quit. Live. Live long enough to experience Jesus being faithful to you. Just hold on. Just live long enough for Jesus to show up and forgive you, and restore you, and redeem even the most terrible things for your good and his glory. You could hang on. And one more. Because of God's good sovereignty, even when things seem to be falling apart, even when things seem out of control, and all you can see is disaster, all you can see is the evil, and sin just seems to be winning, we could anchor ourselves to the cross and the one who bore it for us. Just as he foretold everything. He foretold it all, didn't he? Peter's denials, Judas' betrayal, the religious leader scheming, Satan's work, even his own death, he foretold it all. Just as he foretold it all, he foretells us this in John chapter 16. He said, in this world, you will have trouble. Church, in this world, we're going to have trouble. Church, in this world, there's going to be evil. In this world, there's going to be sin, even our own. In this world, there's going to be tragedies. In this world, 
everything is going to seem like it's falling apart. Jesus foretold it. It's not a surprise to him. He said, in this world, you will have trouble. But, he said, but, he said, take heart, for I have overcome the world. Church, I don't know what you're going through today. You may be in this moment. And by grace, if you're not, you will come to this moment in life sometime. All the sin, all the evil, all the tragedy, everything seems to be falling apart. Your life feeling completely out of control. None of it is a surprise to Jesus. He told us already, in this world, you will have trouble. But church, take heart. Don't forget to take heart because Jesus said he has overcome the world. Let's pray together. Church, in light of God's word today, will you pray and will you ask God, God, will you search me? You know me. Is there a sin that I've been keeping secret? Is there a sin that I've been harboring? And though you're just right there, always so present, so intimate, so near, always inviting me to come, is there something that I just haven't come to you with? Will you ask him to reveal that to you? And will you make a commitment here and now? Jesus, I don't want to hide anymore. I don't want to harbor this anymore. I don't want to keep hardening my heart anymore. Will you make a commitment here and now? Jesus, I'm going to bring it to you. Here it is. I'm going to stop trying to fix it. I'm going to stop trying to undo it. I need you to forgive me, restore me, renew me. And if there's something in your life that's shaking you, you tell him about it. Say, God, this is just shaking me. This is making me doubt. This is making me doubt your goodness. This is making me doubt your control. This is making me doubt how good you are and how in control you are. And you just tell them. And when you ask him, God, in the midst of it all, will you help me to see that your word is still true? Will you help me to see that Jesus is still faithful? Will you help me hang on and just live the next day and the next day? Will you help me to just keep going and live until I can see and experience his faithfulness? Will you ask him? Father, precious are your people to you. Will you answer our prayers? We know that you hear it. Will you answer it, Father? 
We ask you in Jesus' name. Amen.